So welcome to episode 25 of Level Up, 60 minutes of live Q&A, where your questions and votes really do drive the show. Wherever you're watching from, click on a link in the chat and go over to Slido, which is where you can vote at the questions that you would most like answered and, of course, add your own. So today we're going to be talking all about public-private partnerships, you know, and in particular, what certifications are available to prove our credentials in a market where trust and integrity are paramount. So let's jump straight in, meet our panel for today, all of whom are now regular contributors on Level Up. Um, and I'd like to introduce you, first of all, to um, Abaya, Abaya Agawal, who is a partner at Ernst & Young over in India, as well as an, an advising on a wide range of infrastructure PPPs. He also contributes to online and physical conferences as well. So hi, Abaya, welcome back. Hello, and good evening and good afternoon, everybody. Um, uh, as mentioned, I'm a senior partner with Ernst & Young, looking after infrastructure and PPP with almost 30 years of experience. I look forward to joining this panel and interacting with everybody. Perfect. Thank you, Abhay. Thank you for rejoining us today. I really appreciate it, you fitting us in. So that's really great. Um, Andre Kruger is the Chief Operating Officer over at PPP Training Online, an organisation who really focus on enabling others to reach their potential through consulting and training. Welcome back, Andre. Great to see you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity. We look forward to the discussion today. So uh, to dig in into the uh, uh, CP3P courses and the reasons for accreditation, really looking forward to it. Thanks. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Another strong supporter of all things public-private partnership and raising the standards in uh, in the work that goes into those is Sergey Sergey Samelis, who is um, the CEO at PPP Expertise Eurasia. Um, if you might remember from previous episodes, Sergey worked with us to extend the certification by leading the translation of the content into the Russian language. So, hi, Sergey. Great to have you back. Hello, Nick. Thank you very much. Happy to be back. Good to greet all the viewers and all the panelists. Okay, thank you very much indeed. And completing our panel for today is Amandeep Singh Virk, who is a leading international PPP transaction advisor. He's currently working with the World Bank. Really good to welcome you back, Amandeep. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. And hi, everyone. Good day. And pleased to be back on the panel, esteemed panel. And looking forward to good questions and uh, having uh, real, really good discussions on PPPs and the CP3P course. Thank you. Okay, excellent. Very good. Now, look, if you're watching this and you feel that you could answer some of the questions and and join us, then just volunteer in the chat and we'll be in touch to welcome you onto the panel in a future episode. So completing our lineup for today is our question master, um, who is Nigel, Nigel Mercer. He's joining us from Cape Town in South Africa. So Nigel, please may we have the first question. Yeah, hi Nick, uh, hi panel. Sure, the first question is, can you explain what a special purpose vehicle SPV is and what its main purpose is? Okay, so the special purpose vehicle, Amandeep, go ahead. Yeah, so as name suggests, it's a special purpose vehicle, which is created under the laws of a particular jurisdiction or company it could be company or a society depending on the type of project whether it's a core infrastructure maybe some social infrastructure but to undertake a single task or a single project uh, it is not like a company uh, that having multiple 
activities but for the particular ppp projects we're talking about in order to protect the shareholders uh, with limited liability and uh, creating spv the purpose the creating spv has a benefit or a win-win situation for both public and private partners so it allows to the pub uh, you know from the private sector it allows project finance which has a benefits of leveraging and uh, uh, and and limits the exposure of the shareholders of the spv or the special purpose vehicle or company and access to high leverage with limited or non-recourse to the shareholders and since being is a dedicated and exclusive purpose vehicle for project for a specific project or a specific task it, it improves control by the public entity also so it's a benefit for the public entity or the government entity to have a spv so that's the benefits of the pp uh, in ppp of the spv thank you okay thank you very much and uh Abaya, your thoughts yeah, I think Amandeep has covered most of the issues, but uh, I think one of the issue for major infrastructure project is that how do you channelize cash cash flow and how do you take a control of it, particularly lenders, that it doesn't get leaked. So if it is a special purpose company where there is no mixing up with other project in terms of cost or revenue, it's easy to create escrow account and monitor the account. So as mentioned, special purpose is for the project uh, and with a specific purpose so that's why it's called special purpose okay thank you very much and um to complete our thoughts on this sergey um further to what uh, mandeep said uh and also uh, dwell a bit uh more on the lender's perspective he used to work for banks and if we're talking about project finance which is a limited recourse or non-recourse finance it's easier for lenders to look just at one entity that deals with just one project to make sure that all revenues of this project only serve the uh, the loan uh, given to this SPV. It will not be directed to any other projects. So it's, uh, it's watertight, it's easier in terms of control, um, gives better oversight from the perspective of lenders and that allows project finance with higher leverage. Okay, that makes complete sense to me. And, you know, thank you, because that's kind of filled in a couple of thoughts for me around, you know, why are the, why are SPVs, you know, so attractive, you know, particularly from the lender's perspective. So really great panel. Thank you very much indeed. Nigel, let's take the next question, please. Hi, oh, sure, Nick. So the next question is from John in Leeds in the UK. He asks, in your experience, what do successful public-private partnerships have in common? Okay, so is there a golden thread, Andre? Yeah, thank you. So uh, uh, by this time, uh, after many years of PPPs, uh, especially in the in the developed world, uh, we've got many many successful PPPs, and 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 then again, we also know that PPPs are successful because because of the ratings ascribed to PPP transactions. So. Interestingly, that uh, project finance transactions are constantly getting better ratings than balance sheet-based uh, transactions. So, what do they have in common? And I suppose it is the it, it is the the depth of the feasibility studies, uh, the the regulatory oversight that that we find in 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 these transactions that is at the heart of the of 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 the issue. So, um, in short, then uh, very very uh, uh, 
comprehensive feasibility studies, regulatory oversight by by uh, by governments themselves. I think would be at the core. Thank you. Thank you, Amandi. Yeah. Uh, so, as Adri said, uh, one this is the successful PPPs. It's a combination of taking the right steps at each phase of the project, right from identification of the projects. There are so many infrastructure projects any any government would like to, uh, you know, invest into or develop into. You know, be it roads, sports, hospitals, social infrastructure, etc. The first step is to select the right project through a proper screening and looking at the public investment management aspects. The second aspect is what Andre said, appraise it and prepare it wonderfully, prepare it in a, in a very, very deep dive manner, which is feasibility study or preparing a business case from all the aspects, right? And third phase is the transparent procurement process. Yeah, transparent means, as we said, watertight uh, qualification, watertight evaluating the bids, fairness to all the bidders so that there's no issue for any uh, transparency sector and last but not the least uh, is the proper project management contract management right and one more aspect that's coming to my mind is the communication the stakeholder consultations taking all the stakeholders at each phase whether identification project preparation contract management taking all the stakeholders on board and so that there should not be any problem later on. And many projects do fail in different phases, what I have talked about earlier. So we need to care of care uh, on at all each and every phase to make the project successful. Thank you. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, um, Sergey. And then we'll take uh, Andre last. Um, Sorry, a buyer last. Sorry, Sergey, go ahead. Yeah. Speaking of success, so how do we define success? Uh, if it's not not failing projects, so project that is completed, a project that delivers the value for money, which it was intended to deliver, then we can compare PPPs to. Uh, we just heard both perspectives, comparing it with traditional procurement or comparing it with balance sheet projects, probably uh, private balance sheet projects. And I feel that PPPs have an advantage. It's proven statistically have an advantage over traditionally procured PPP projects. There is a lot of research comparing the same jurisdiction uh, projects which were procured directly by the state and uh, PPPs. Uh, PPPs have lower uh, rate of failure. Uh, and same, likewise, PPPs as compared with balance sheet projects, you would see that they have a rare, uh, rarely get to default state. If there is a default, there is a, a better chance of renegotiation. If there is a renegotiation, there's a better chance of avoiding uh, bankruptcy. So all of those statistically are proven. The reasons, um, I would, uh, further to what my um, other panelists said, I would add more focus on uh, uh, good risk allocation and uh, embedded mechanisms of uh, taking advantage of the efficiency of the private sector, if we compare it to the traditionally procured uh, projects, uh, ensuring that there is skin in the game and there is equity as what the private sector brings in, which drives a long-term uh, outlook uh, of the private sector to the project, which is not necessarily present in a traditionally procured one. Okay, thank you. And last, Abaya. 
Yeah, so I think uh, most of the points have been covered, but uh, the issue is that a project should be PPAble. If it is too complex, too technology-oriented, or too much of social service, which is not backed by performance payment, etc., say hospital, schools, and um, then it's a problem. So it has to be structured properly so that it is viable, and uh, also it is manageable by a private sector, and there's enough private sector interest. So what we see in uh, our country, sometimes on health PPP project, there are not enough people who can invest. We did with World Bank in terms of private sector development and creating vendors and entrepreneurs, et cetera, but I think it's still something which is in, has to be done. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Good advice, everybody. So a great question, actually, and um, some interesting insight from different uh, angles uh, from each of the panellists. Thank you very much. Nigel, let's move on. We'll take the next question, please. Yeah, sure, Nick, no problem at all. So the next question is from Sanjay in Mumbai in India. He asks, what constitutes a good PPP business case? I hear that most PPPs are rejected because the business case is incomplete or not strong enough. Okay, well, I would say it's a good thing if your business case gets <laughs> rejected. You need to think a little bit further. Amadi, kick us off, and then we'll go to Andre next. Yeah, right. As in the last question, also during the last question, we discussed that the business case is nothing but the project preparation, not we discussed about, right? So uh, what, uh, and Sanjay comes from, I think, from, uh, it's Mumbai, India. So India or any other governments, they do always rush well when project preparation comes into play so it need to be very very thorough yeah so that's the reason many projects do fail and it is it says some sometimes it's incomplete or not so strong enough as sanjay said so it has to be looked at project need to be appraised from all the angles whether it's technical commercial financial environmental social and these days climate change also uh, and then look into whether that project makes sense as under said value for money uh, compared to the uh, uh, public sector comparator and then one it is a financially viable that is always we look into secondly it's a, whether it's a bankable whether the end of the lenders are uh, into in, uh, there are there are lenders to fund it and then whether what what the size of project and uh, whether the mdbs and other guarantees need to be looked into and thirdly taking the all the stakeholders on on board uh, so that it should not fail later on. That's what good, good business case is all about. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Andre. Yes, to, 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 to take what Amandipa said and, and, and maybe focus on one or two of those aspects. So firstly, not all projects should and need to be PPP or procured through a PPP mechanism. That's maybe, maybe the first point. When, when a government has got a, a pipeline of PPP projects, um, that, that, that very initial uh, uh, decision on prioritizing this, 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 this pipeline of, of, of projects will take you through a technical feasibility, uh, economic cost benefit analysis, and then what is called the investment decision in the CP3P uh, terminology. And, and that investment decision, in effect, means that government has decided, listen, this is a worthwhile project that we want to invest in before they make the procurement decision. And, and then following that, they will go through a, an appraisal phase, a, a feasibility phase. 
and that will actually lead you to, to to the point of deciding which procurement methodology will be the, will, will be will be the best. So the fact that projects are rejected as PPPs, as, as one of our colleagues have already said, not necessarily bad. It may be a very good point uh, to rather procure the project on a traditional basis. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Bayer, last thoughts on this one before we move on? Yeah, again, I think everybody has covered, so maybe I'm raising my hand a little late, but I will try okay. to kind of throw a little different light <laughs> on the whole thing. So uh, I think as Andrea and Amandeep said, we have to see that, uh, you know, if it is a technical feasibility study, and then what is the quality of technical feasibility and uh, whether you have contractors and equipments and whether the terrain of logistics in terms of tendering machine, or you have to go much more detail. You can't go and create something where it is impossible to create. And then what are the environmental impact, et cetera. And the last thing is, of course, if it is government pay, uh, PPP project, and what is the ability of the government? What is the credit risk? A uh, whole lot of things. So it's a good question and uh, many sides of it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, panel. Great question. Very well done. Let's move on then, Nigel, please. If we can, I can see new questions coming in in the chat all the time. Yeah, that's, thanks, Nick. There are lots of questions coming in. So here we've got one from Rene in Amsterdam. And he asks, what is the biggest threat to a PPP project? Biggest threat. Wow. Okay. Um, Abaya? I think the biggest threat is that uh, if government and people, they are not uh, totally involved in preparing it. The project should be really needed and everything should, everybody should be on, on board. Um, otherwise, uh, once the government change or later on, there could be a problem of about structuring in such a way that some people are benefited. I think the PPP will be in a problem. So that is the first thing. Second thing is the project should be really needed and all the preparation should be done beforehand uh, rather than announcing the project. So the, I think these two things are very important. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. And um, uh, Amandeep, what, what would be just one thing to think about in terms of you know threats right. to a project of this nature? Okay, having discussed everything earlier regarding different phases, for me, the biggest threat, once the, you say all the project is procured and you, the private sector is in place, the biggest threat is the two love triangles. The one love triangle is between the lenders, concession, uh, the private sector, and the government. Government And second love triangle is between the independent expert, the consultants, basically, and the government and the contractors. These three two love triangles are biggest threat once the project is on board. You are done the commercial close the first love triangle between lenders and the consultants and everything is about when you're going to the lenders to get the finance so or wrong projections over projections to get more debt and high leverage so then later on it it falls through and it it, it eventually goes to a termination phase second is about when the contract is being managed the independent expert or the consultants everyone knows that events defined in the project agreement, the, whether it's compensation events or the any, apart from the force majority events, the act of God, all other events are normally known to everyone. It is going to happen and this is going to hit the project, right? And it will create, going. it's going to create the liabilities for the government. But nobody speaks out. Nobody, you know, there's no whistleblowers uh, except a few cases. And that is the biggest threat. 
right, right. No, really, really well done. And that's kind of stuck in my mind now as well, just thinking about those two, you know, three-way relationships. So really good. Thank you very much indeed, panel. Uh, Nigel, let's move on and then we'll take the next question, please. Sure, Nick. The next question is from Jagadish in Bangalore, India. And he asks, how can one get involved on a PPP project on a voluntary or remote basis from a resource standpoint? Also, are there any restrictions from any geographic standpoint or involvement? It's a great question, Andre. What would you recommend as a starting point? Yeah, so I hope I understand the question correctly. So I'll talk, um, uh, I'm also based in, in, in South Africa, in, jo- in Johannesburg. So I'll talk from an uh, African perspective. We find that many times that, that smaller or, or let's call it localized or, or people working within a country, uh, they've got a small business, a medium-sized business, uh, and it's very difficult for them to participate in, in, in PPPs. So, so, so firstly then, depending on which sector you are working, um, you will have to then try and identify. And, and um, I'm an ex-banker, I had a banking career behind me. And what we did at the bank is many times when people approach us is, is to try and refer them then to either construction companies or facilities manage, managers, uh, water operators. Uh, that So depending on where the interest is of, of, <coughs> of, of someone that wants to become, offer their services, maybe as a smaller player initially, the very first thing is to identify, obviously, your sector, players in the market and sometimes bankers can help you uh, with, with those general type of information and even the development banks um, I think would be a good uh, resource so finding out who are the players who are the players in the PPP market maybe just those few comments thanks yeah I think you're absolutely spot on I think um, a big part of it you know as a smaller business is networking you know, to be able to understand, you know, who who you might be able to add value to. Even the largest organizations you know, are stretched for the right resource at the right time. And if you have a specialism that you could bring, you know, whether it be um, on the analysis side or, you know, in mitigating risk in managing project offices in program management, you know, whatever your specialism is, as part of the portfolio of services that are required, to deliver a particular project and networking is the first place. The other leg up I would suggest or rung on the ladder that you could step onto is by taking some of the qualifications um, so that you can prove that you are actually understanding of um, the kind of work that may be needed or the kind of relationship management that may be needed throughout. So um, we'll come on to talk a little bit more about those um, a little bit later on. But great question. Thank you very much indeed uh, for adding it. And um, I would say these days, you know, there are some restrictions in terms of geography. Um, but it depends on what your role is likely to be. Sometimes there are roles that can transcend the geographical boundaries. Um, Sergey, do you find that increasingly now that there's greater flexibility, certain roles and responsibilities? Yes, I, I'd say for, for the last year and a half, since remote working became the norm, uh, we see so many of the calls for consultants from international financial institutions so many of them are looking for individuals, and it's 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 uh, most of them are uh, global, not national. So if one has a, a area of expertise, I would advise to get registered on the uh, procurement portals of the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, European Bank for Reconstruction Development, other 
other files and look for loads of opportunities in your speciality area. That's really good advice. Thank you very much, Sergei. And we'll put some links later on in the chat to uh, some of those portals. Very good. Thank you very much indeed, panel. Great question. Let's move on. Take the next one, please, Nigel. Yeah, sure, Nick. The next one is from Fabio in Paris, and he says, I hear the term common law used quite often in reference to PPPs. Can you explain what this means? Um, so, uh, Amandeep, go ahead, and then Abaya. All right. So, I think this question comes from France, right, from civil court country. So, common law is, unlike a civil code, is uncodified, right? It means there are no comprehensive uh, compilation of um, legal rules or regulations, or but uh, or the statutes, or but uh, all, it it comes from the legislative decisions, the past precedents in the legal fraternity and the different courts on a specific idea. Although there are laws and regulations, but there are no unlike uh, civil court, there are like different categories: law, substantive, procedural, and penal. Wherein substantive in civil court, like this differentiate between criminal law or the civil prosecution and procedural it established of which are the particular criminal act is being done and the penal the penalty is defined in common law it is not defined it all depends on the merit of the case and on the past judgments being given in the in different courts or the higher court like supreme court thank you thank very you. much indeed abaya yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I will give example, like in India for highways for very long, there was no enablement clause in uh, act for PPPs, but it was kind of interpreted as that it is not disabled as well. Now, if, if, if it's in a civil uh, countries, then it has to be specifically enabled. So past cases, they define that what is the, you know, basis for judgment and Many of the future cases, they take a clue to what has been decided in the past. And most of the countries which were colonies of UK, uh, they follow common law. So that's, that's why it's called common, because it is common to all the Commonwealth countries. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a really good point in law that, you know, statute sets out a framework and often there are little gaps and things, unintended um, uh, omissions, if you like, you know, to those. And then the courts generally are working in the real world. And so they're developing, you know, an interpretation that can be used. And judgments sometimes are fixed and only applicable to a single case. And on other occasions can be referenced by, um, you know, by others in the future. And so it evolves and the law grows and, and develops over time. So that's really good. Thank you very much, uh, panel. Nigel, I think we could take one more question before we get to the focus topic. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, we have a question from Sanjay again in India. He says, can you explain the role of the World Bank versus development banks in PPP financing? Amandeep? Yeah, so World Bank is like another development bank or the multilateral development bank. So the, these banks, uh, they do financing, they do advisory services to the government and financing, it could be from both sides from uh, as, a, as a debt and as a as equity also. And in terms of debt, more like an AB loan where the commercial banks do benefit from the, you know, credit of credit rating of the World Bank. And secondly, I also provide the guarantees to, uh, you know, for the creditworthiness 
uh, of a of a particular commercial or uh, or a or a project. So that's that's and and from the starting from the each phase of the phase of the PPP, World Bank also uh, you know uh, what you call uh, help or assist governments to identify the project to prepare PPP frameworks to uh, prepare the projects and assist in technical advisory like transaction advisory etc. Okay, thank you very much. That's really helpful. Appreciate it. So good. Now then, let's change gears um, a little. And I'm going to invite Andre to join me um, for the focus topic. For those of you who have um, logged into Slido, just click on the little focus topic tab. and You can add your questions for Andre and the rest of the panel on the topic of the certifications. Now, We've we've had many thousands of people now. I think at the beginning of this year, there was more than 7,000 individuals who had taken the APMG Certified Public-Private Partnership certifications all around the world, over 160 countries. And they had all taken part. So um, it's an incredible you know, growth, Andre, from when it first began. Why, why do you think personally that, the CP3P certification suite has kind of grown, become its definitive credential. Hmm. Thank, thank you, Nick. Um, that, that's very interesting. So I'll speak mostly about Africa. Um, that's where we, uh, where PPP training operates uh, mostly by by default. We've got about ninety percent of our business across the continent, um, and 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 it's probably about the setting of standards, the setting of 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 a uh, a good set of rules, rules, uh, regulations, uh, giving examples, etc., um, uh, making it easier. Even although in, in in Africa we still find many governments that say no, no, we don't want to use uh, the uh, CP3P uh, material. We want you as consultant to develop a PPP course for us. Now I find that that very strange because you get a complete variety of quality. As, as, as a government entity. Uh, some courses are good, others are not so good, and others are terrible. <laughs> so my, my first answer is it probably sets a standard, and more and more so we find the PPP units uh, asking for uh, and even recommending within their countries. Uh, we've recently done some work with uh, one of the states in Nigeria, uh, the PPP unit, that have said, listen, they have, they have actually done some other courses. They, have, they, they are not... They are not green in this space. They have, they, 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 they've got experience, but they wanted the CP3P qualification. Something else is, is um, it opens up new job opportunities. Very interesting point. And, and one of our colleagues focused, uh, I think it was Amandeep, focused a little bit on the uh, execution, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the contract management part of it. We have had a number of cases where people take these courses because they want to become specialist contract managers. There are not enough of those type of people, qualified people, that can actually lead a contract management team. So we have found quite a number that said, listen, I want to do all three levels, the CP3P foundation, preparation, execution, because I want to become a specialized contract manager in the PPP space. And I want to go and work. We've had one guy that wanted to go to Brazil, and he, he put his, his, his uh, he reacted on an advertisement for Brazil a year or two ago, and they told him that uh, your experience is good, but finish the CP3P and you've got a job. So that was an interesting. interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, very interesting. So I think interesting. in, in and, short, and that... it set standards. Um, it set right, standards, right, very good, right. solid standards. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that that really from the outset, when the team came together to write the body of knowledge of what constitutes, you know, what good looks like in the world of yeah. public-private partnerships. That was a fascinating exercise and a very collegiate one where you had experts really from drawn from different backgrounds across the world who were able to work together, you know, in order to be able to write down and 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 crystallize in a single document, you know, what um, that actually looked like. Now, that, that kind of takes me on to the next question, which is more to do with the kinds of people that will study you know, the foundation or the preparation, you know, and even the execution level. What, what kind of backgrounds or roles and responsibilities are um, are the ones that you see uh, taking these courses, Andre? Yeah, that's also a fascinating one. I, I thought you were going to leave yourself open to uh, telling you that it's tall people and short people, uh, but I won't go there. So, no. <laughs> so, so, so we find we find uh, professional people, mostly professionals. Um, and interestingly, we've got a, a good number of PhDs. That's fascinating. Uh, but obviously, people that are specialized as engineers as economists, and, and, and they want to become involved. Um, and, and in this case with, of, of Nigeria, we've got guys that uh, are, are PhDs in, um, in, in animal, what do you call it, uh, looking after animals, uh, and anyhow, doctorates, and they are now the one guys heading up a PPP unit in one of the states in Nigeria. So he wants to understand this, this animal, this, uh, because it's about legal, finance. So we get these the usual guys, finance guys, legal guys, engineers, people in the social space. The interesting ones was probably, the most interesting ones was probably the scientists, especially in the water space. We get water scientists. They, 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 they uh, progress throughout the organization and they become leaders in the, in the utilities, municipalities, counties. And, and then they need to understand more about, <laughs> about business. Um, so that that was also a very interesting uh, interaction, and they've done very well. Obviously, very intelligent people, but doesn't know anything about legal or finance or nothing. But um, so so it's a it's a. I think of lately, we find I would guess sixty seventy percent would be people working in the PPP space, um, right. in a PPP unit, uh, or maybe even from the private sector. Um, we need to do, uh, consulting engineering firms. Um, they more and more are participating as transaction advisors, and for that reason, they need to understand exactly what is it that the public sector need to, what hoops they they need to jump through, um, uh, to to be able to react yeah. properly. Yeah, I think it's been quite interesting as well over the time that I've been involved with it from the very early launch of the qualifications. Um, we did this in uh, in Korea. I was in Korea for the kind of formal launch, if you like. And at that yeah. stage, you know, we had um, real interest from such a range of organizations. You know, we had um, in the audience there, we had um, uh, central government uh, people, we had local government people, we had uh, financiers, we had, as you say, engineers and the, the folks that build you know, power plant and, and generation capacity and, yeah. you know, dig tunnels and create infrastructure and so on, all of the way through to those people who are more specialist in the delivery of a project and less 
less specialist in the particular vertical, if that makes sense. You know, so there, there were people right from the very, you know, kind of all aspects of the ecosystem that need to come together. And there was a certain celebration, I think, of the catalytic capability of having those standards, having a common language, you know, with which to be able to discuss and and improve the quality of outcomes. So, um, on, 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 I, I on, on that point, if I can, on, uh, sorry, Nick, if on, yes. on that point, I just wanted to expand a little bit on that. I think some of the most successes that we have seen afterwards, after one has gone through the training, is where we've had the, the management team of a uh, government organization attending. So, in South Africa, in, this, in the one specific case, we had a municipality, local government entity, and um, we had the uh, Let's call it the CEO, uh, the finance director, the head of legal, the head of electricity, as a group taking the course. Um, and that was just initially the foundation. And after they have gone through the foundation course, they as a group decided that we've got to do all three levels. And that was very powerful. Because going forward, when they had to conceptualize these projects, they've got a, normally you've got a lot of projects on a, on a pipeline. And you must sort of sort them out, decide which ones will be prioritized which ones may be the best to be developed on a PPP basis. That helped them significantly because they were talking from the same hymn sheet, if I can use that analogy. Um, so that, yeah, maybe just the, the type of people, sometimes it's good to bring a group. Yeah, yeah most definitely. And, and I think you're right there. It, it's, it's the sort of thing that appeals as well in terms of it crosses the boundaries of people who are early, mid and late career. You know, the, the more senior people are really interested as well because they need that insight to be able to build this cohesion, yeah. you know, amongst all of the different groups and so many moving parts in um, yeah. building, first of all, the PPP and then getting it to the point where it's financed and then actually, you know, getting it delivered um, with the right kind of outcomes for citizens. It's incredibly complex, really. Um, so to kind of, you know, last question really would be, what would your advice be to people who are thinking, you know, maybe they should put forward one or two, you know, individuals from their team to learn this content? Or would you say all out to them, you know, look, keep an open mind, you know, actually consider doing that, you know, full commitment, you know, that all in approach where, everybody who's involved, you know, goes through this kind of structured certification. So, so I'll get to your specific question in a moment. So, so I've spoken about a management team. Um, and, and, and the next example, and we've had a few of those as well, is where we get the IFC or tra a transaction advisory team being appointed. And part of their responsibility many times is to capacitate. So I was fortunate to have been appointed by the IFC to assist a project management team. That is now the, the group of people inside the institution that want to develop a project potential on a PPP um, and to train that team. And, and the motivation for the IFC was is that they want a stronger counterparty. They want that government entity that now put forward uh, this project as a potential PPP and the IFC have decided to support them as transaction advisors. The IFC wants their client to be a stronger client uh, uh, that they can that they can argue with, uh, debate with, uh, because it's no good. One of one of the 
the risks that, that uh, and I'll do this quickly uh, on PPPs, is when you get a transaction advisor, especially a development bank, when they take over and they leave the client, the government entity behind, because the entity staff is not that strong. So enough about that. So the, again, the team, the team approach. Uh, but then again, uh, we have had many cases where you've got individuals from an organization attending, but it's always a problem when that person goes back into the office to actually uh, be able to convince his or her colleagues that, listen, this is something that we need to consider if you are a lone ranger in, in, in that space. I'm not sure if that helps, right. but I, I would lean towards the, the team, bringing a team, even if a team is two to start with. Uh, that that type of yeah 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 no it really does help and i i I think that you're absolutely right and you know thank you very much for you know sharing that you know experience with us because um getting that you know balanced and i loved your commentary around you know almost leveling up if you like the the ability to have that more meaningful dialogue you know where there isn't one part you know just simply overwhelming another you know, you need strong challenge, I think. Strong challenge brings better, more informed debate and decisions, therefore, that are taken um, in in the in full knowledge and understanding. There's nothing ever guaranteed, but I do feel that if you're on an equal footing, you're more likely, you know, to reach um, a more considered outcome than, you know, if one side is driving it too strongly than the other. So good. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed, Andre. That was really great. So what we'll do now is we'll move back to um, the panels. I can see that we've got quite a lot of questions, actually, <laughs> of focus topic stack. So I think, Nigel, you're going to have your work cut out. Panel, we're going to have to be pretty brief, I think, in order to get through um, the ones that are already in. So let's kick off with the first question, please. Yeah, sure, Nick. So the first question is from Peter in London. It says, how do I persuade the more senior members of my team to come take the certification? All right, so it's a inf- good influencing question. Sergey, um, for some of our of our courses, we don't have this problem um, when uh, there's a program that NIFI supports, and typically our client would be a PPP unit, and uh, very often our, uh, the co- learning cohort would include a senior person, and we have at least two uh, deputy secretaries of state one in Ukraine, uh, two from Ukraine, and very uh, invariably head of the PPP unit. And uh, I mean, in case uh, this is not the reality, uh, I think you may suggest to the, to you, to the uh, leaders of your, of your agency that your staff would become internationally <clears throat> certified professionals. So they would use terminology, methodology, uh, uh, that are international standards, and. Uh, when they talk to their superiors, it may make sense for them to take at least the foundation course to be on the same page with their uh, with their staff. Thank you very much, Avaya. I think uh, I will kindly agree with him uh, in the sense that you know, once you take the foundation course, you also know many things you know intuitively, but you need to know much more scientifically, uh, methodically, uh, and I think the the material is so high quality that once you go through it, you will be uh, having many more uh, clarity on the issues which you have been working on. As a 
practitioner or as a government, which will be needed. So, exposing people to foundation course is a good idea. Okay, thanks, Abai. We've got a little bit of challenge on your quality of your audio just then, but I think we got the gist of what you were trying to say. Nigel, can let's take the next question, please. Sure, Nick. So we've got uh, we've got so many questions stacking up here. It's difficult to know which one to choose, to be honest. But I have a I have an interesting one here. That's uh, this one is from John in Leeds, and he says, "I would like to become a PPP trainer." What steps are required to achieve this? Okay, all right. Well, there's quite a bit involved that um, includes, you know, having some experience in the PPP world. And Andre, you've built a team around this. What advice would you give? Thank you um, for that for that question. It it it, it is actually fascinating. We, we receive much more applications or interest from people. Uh, or many more um, than than I ever expected. So, so uh, Nick, you started off by saying that we've got many people uh, now participating in the CP3P, uh, and that's true. And 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 then again, uh, the the moment we get a group of people, out of every group, there's virtually a person that that reckons, listen, I want to progress to the next level, or I want to become a PPP trainer, and how to do that. So, so maybe firstly, from a from a technical perspective, you need to score a certain percentage in your exams. I think it's sixty six percent or something. Um, so that's from a technical perspective. Then, then as a training organization, what you actually want is you want the most experienced people to become trainers. So, so sometimes we find very well qualified people, but with a very little experience. And that's quite difficult then to take somebody like that on board. Be- because if we get people from Cairo, I'm sitting in Johannesburg in the south of, of Africa. If we get people from Cairo and Morocco, or when we get people from those jurisdictions, they want possibly international experience in, in the trainers. So, so I would guess, uh, firstly, is obviously, uh, if you want to become a trainer, take the courses and pass them well. And then secondly, I would argue that you need uh, some, to build up some experience um, in, in, your, in your home base uh, around different types of PPPs, different sectors, et cetera, et cetera. And if possible, see if you can be, uh, some, in some countries, you can get seconded to the PPP unit, maybe look for a secondment, or even if you cannot get into your PPP unit, maybe a bank where there's a project finance department that will take on I'll take on younger people, uh, maybe for training purposes, but enough about that. I'm sure others will have more viewpoints. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sergey. Yeah, we, we also see the same uh, that uh, Andre is mentioning. Uh, almost invariably, from every cohort that we teach, which would be 20 to 50 people, there would be at least one or a few uh, participants mm-hmm. who, would, uh, who would inquire, how do I get to a trainer status? Uh, absolutely agree that experience is is key. Uh, uh, but um, second second uh, aspect would be uh, how good of a teaching professional uh, a candidate is. Has he or she been teaching anything, not PPPs, but anything? Um, that's very uh, important. Uh, sometimes that kind of uh, um, deters uh, potential candidates seeing that don't have enough experience yet in PPPs, but there are ways of uh, getting involved, at least with our training organization. 
sometimes um, an individual can have specific sector knowledge, which is uh, could be used for a um, for a future participation in a, in a training course. Uh, not as a trainer, not necessarily uh, as a certified trainer, but just as an invited speaker to dwell on the a certain sector, on a certain national framework, that would be welcome. And if you're an experienced professional, we, we encourage you to get in touch with ATOs. Uh, and from our perspective, uh, languages is an important uh, commercial aspect. So we are pretty strong on Russian language, English language, but... If if you're a French language speaker, Spanish, Portuguese, that's something we're looking for. By all means, please do get in touch. Yeah, absolutely right. So if you're an individual, um, first place to start really is build your network with the accredited organizations. They're all listed on the APMG International website. Reach out to somebody locally, begin that conversation. You can always come back to the folks on the panel as well in the future uh, and follow up with them directly. Very good. Next question, please, Nigel. Sure. We've got a question from John, he's in Leeds. John asks, would my career options be enhanced if I obtain all of the CP3P certifications? Would it make me a better prospect, I assume, for employment? Okay, so um, the really short answer to that is it depends on what you're trying to achieve from that. Um, but certainly there is uh, an overarching qualification that is awarded when you complete all three separate courses. Uh, Amandeep, anything else to add before we move on? No, I agree with you. So even you are well experienced, but after the CP3P certification, you will on the top of the PPP, uh, you know, prospects and yes, definitely it will enhance your knowledge as well as the standardization of the various terms and the procedures in the worldwide. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Next question, Nigel. Sure, Nick, we've got uh, so many questions, difficult to know which one to choose here. But this is an interesting one from Tim in Ottawa. Is I've got more than 10 years of experience working as a project manager on PPP projects. Would this certification, you know, what would it bring me on top of that? Well, it's such a big difference between general project management and working on PPP projects. Um, Sergey, bring a laser focus to this for us. Uh, we saw a couple of cases where people with a lot of experience in PPPs failed for even foundation level uh, exams uh, when they tackle it without due preparation. So you'd be surprised to find uh, how much of your individual experience not only enhances your uh, prowess in PPPs, but also limits it to what you know. And certainly it helps to get aware of the global uh, standard of the best international practices. So definitely your professional knowledge would expand. And secondly, becoming a certified PPP professional, with all of your experience, you'll become more eligible for, for some work. And we see some of the calls for uh, consultants from uh, some of the IFIs, which have it as a requirement of, of being a certified PPP professional. So they have it. Thank you very much. Andre, anything to add? Just very quickly, um, we've had some experience with uh, the Goud train. It's a light rail PPP project here in South Africa. Our contract management team is, is, is more or less 80 people, 80 people working in the contract management unit. It's quite a big, at the stage, it was the largest PPP in Africa. 
And the CEO of the organization actually requested us to train the project managers in the Gautrain Management Agency because every one of them was working with a small part of the PPP project and they did not necessarily understand the bigger picture. So I agree with Sergey that um, it could be uh, really helpful. Um, uh, I, I suppose it depends. Some people may have a very wide experience working in, as, as project managers and others may not. So we had a group of uh, 20, 25 that, that uh, all project managers within that uh, organization um, hopefully benefited from, from the, uh, the formal courses. Yeah, I, I'm sure that they did too. I think, yeah, you know, our experiences, you know, anybody that's, you know, kind of mid to late career, our experience informs us, of course, but it, it can also blind us sometimes. You know, so to Sir Kay's point, you know, looking at it afresh, doing your homework, not assuming that you know the answers to this, but actually genuinely coming, you know, with an open mind as you uh, as you would expect. That that is the best recipe, really, to get the very best value out of the education and training that's delivered. Very good. So, Nigel, I think we've got time just to fit in one more question please before we go to the closing remarks yeah thanks Nick. i think we can fit this one in this is from peter in london he says does the panel believe you need a gap in between each course or do you recommend that people take them soon after each other okay so this is progressing through the cp3p learning path from foundation all of the way through to execution amandeep it, it really depends, you know, what kind of experience you have and uh, who is taking this course. If you are well experienced already doing PPPs, yes, you can take in a progressive manner to do foundation, do preparation and execution, go the full course. However, if you are just, uh, you know, getting into the PPP space, it's better to first, you know, le- uh, take the foundation, do some practice, do some projects, uh, and then. Uh, at the same time, then take preparation and execution later on. All right, excellent. Thank you, Sergey. Uh, we've seen some um, calls for training courses from IFIs that would combine foundation preparation in a single procurement, and also all three over the course of one year. Taking all three consecutively, uh, I mean like over one month, studying every day is probably too hard a strain on uh, on you mentally, it's it's a tough, uh, large volume of information, and it's it's hugely distracting from uh, from your other uh, commitments. Uh, but taking it over uh, half a year is is realistic if you're ready. And one more point: uh, we've seen some people who took the foundation course, and they mainly deal with contract management. And they they ha- they can go straight to execution, but. Uh, mm. As a training organization, we would advise them uh, anyway to take preparation because it, it it would segue you into execution. And even the case method of uh, taking exams that, that starts from preparation and execution, you'd better uh, take the preparation first, get used to it, and then uh, get into execution. So that's uh, some of the execution answers uh, stem back into the first chapters so i'd advise not to go through from foundation to execution directly okay thank you very much indeed that's really good uh, great job panel and uh, some really interesting questions um today i think put to us 
So I think what we'll do now is we'll wrap up and we'll go for um, closing remarks um, if we can. So Andre, if you'd like to start us off and then we'll go to Sergey next. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, and thank you for, the, for those that have uh, came online today. We really appreciate your participation. Uh, we really uh, would want to suggest for you, if you haven't taken any of these courses, start off with the foundation course. It really provides a great over, overview uh, of PPP as a procurement methodology. And you get to know like-minded people or inter people interested in the same type of topics. Um, yeah, thank you, Nick. We really appreciate it. And it was a good session. Thank you to APMG. Thank you very much indeed, Sergei and then Abaya. Uh, thank you very well, much, I think, APMG. Uh, um, yeah. Sh shall I continue? So, okay, go ahead. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you, PMG, for 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 this event. Uh, from my experience, this, this CP3P is uh, the best comprehensive uh, program in in learning about PPPs. The only internationally certif certified one, and uh, we hope that it uh, gains it gains even more momentum. And uh, ultimately, that should be the language that all PPP units, all governments in the world, all IFIs use. That was the intention, and I hope the numbers will prove it. Um, I think you're right. Thank you, Sergey, Abaya, and then Amandeep. I think it's a great course and, uh, and very good quality material uh, which you are exposed to. Uh, even if you are a practitioner for very long, you come to a, a kind of scientific mold while going through this course, which will clear up uh, many of the thought process. And also it's a good reference material for future. So people should go for it. It's a kind of PPP is a kind of, uh, you know, more integration of many subjects. So this course provides comprehensive uh, evaluation of all of them. Thank you very much, uh, Amandeep, and then Nigel. No, I agree with all the panelists. Yeah, so even even if you are doing the PPPs, uh, you know, for example, if you're doing PPP in single country or a single space, uh, geographical area, it will be much much beneficial and take your knowledge base to a, a higher level. Uh, and that basically, is, the question is the standardization. You can talk, you can work in other countries also taking this uh course and uh, it's really really good and it's kind of a it's not necessary or mandatory but it will be very good for all the practitioners or whoever whosoever want a sector specific guy for example environmentalist even he want, would like to go into ppp space it will be very good for him to understand the whole process and then how climate and climate change and resilience get into the ppp space also yeah and thank you thank you for having me in this panel uh, thanks Nick. Thanks very much indeed, Amandeep. Um, Nigel, just briefly. Yeah, very briefly. Another fantastic show. We have so many questions. They've been stacking up, and we'll keep them for the next PPP show, I think, to so many to look to go through. Okay. All right. Thank you very much indeed. So talking about that, looking ahead next week on Level Up, we'll be focusing on IT service management and the role that professional memberships uh, can play in helping us to broaden out our experience and our understanding of the modern world of service management for IT. Um, we're then going to move on a little bit later on in the day to look at project management and change management. And we'll be answering that key question, you know, my project 
It's really political. How do you go about managing project politics in real life? Okay, And then beyond that, a little bit further on, we're going to be looking at um, some core skills for us as professionals and whether we're working remotely or face to face, how to be a brilliant facilitator. So looking forward to all of those. If you would like to follow us, um, then please do register with us. Use the little QR code on the screen or go to apmginternational.com and just search for Level Up. It's really easy to find. We'll then send you a weekly summary of what's coming up on the programme and we'll look forward to welcoming to you um, potentially at least to a future show. Very good. Thanks very much indeed. We'll see you next time.